You can find a seat today, and if you have a Bible, I want to encourage you to grab it. And we're going to be in Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter number three is where we're going to be today. We're starting a brand new series of messages today that we're calling Into the Wild. And we are going to be studying for the next several weeks the life of John the Baptizer. And uh, he lived a life out in the wild, in the wilderness. And I believe that if we pay attention, there's so much that we can glean and so much wisdom that we can find from the wilderness. And so today, we're going to be in Luke chapter number three. And we'll start reading in verse number one. And if you're there, would you say amen? Amen. Most of the verses should be on the screen as well today. But Luke chapter three, verse number one, the Bible says this. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, and of the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene. Verse 2. Annas and Caiaphas, being the high priests, the word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the country, about Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Esaias the prophet, saying, the voice, everybody say the voice, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough ways shall be made smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. For a few minutes today, I'd like to speak to this subject. Lift up your voice. Lift up your voice. Let's have a word of prayer, and we'll dive in together. Father, thank you so much for this time that we can come together and worship you through song, through generosity, through your word. Lord, thank you for the early service that you already gave us. And God, I pray that you would do something special in our midst here this morning right now in this service. Lord, I pray that I would be able to get out of the way and that you would be lifted up and that you would be magnified. Lord, I pray that our hearts would leave this place burning and stirring to know more of you and to know more of your word. And God, I pray that as we begin this series that your Holy Spirit would work and that we would be able to glean much wisdom from the wilderness and that you would be pleased and glorified in it all. And we love you. In Jesus' name, and everybody said this morning, amen. Amen. A few years ago, I was sitting at home, and Katie, my wife, asked me if I would go pick up some lunch, and she asked me if I would go to Panda Express. Any Panda Express fans in the house today? And I usually don't turn down orange chicken, and so I thought, okay, I'll go pick up some lunch. And I remember walking into Panda Express, and this was right during the height of coronavirus. This is right when all the mandates and restrictions were still in place. How many remember those days, right? And I walked in there, and they had the stickers on the floor that said social distance and six feet. And, and uh, uh, by the cash, uh, cash, cash register, there was that, that plastic you know, um, uh, divide and barrier standing in between us. And I remember going in there to order, and it was a frustrating experience because uh, I had to order from six feet away with that plastic barrier in place while everyone was wearing a mask. And, and it was frustrating because uh, I could not hear the person taking my order 
and they could not hear me. Uh, how many of you have ever had one of those experiences, right? And I remember pulling down my mask, like I would just like some orange chicken and, uh, and some beef broccoli and trying to uh, communicate my order. And all I heard back was, and I don't know what he was saying. And and I remember just thinking, man, this is kind of frustrating. So I went outside, I sat in my car, I placed a mobile order, went back in, picked it up. And that's how that's how I got lunch that day. And I remember just wanting to tell that young gentleman that was taking and receiving my order, would you please just lift up your voice so that I can hear you? Would you please just talk a little bit louder and lift up your voice? Today, we come to Luke chapter number three, and we start a brand new series of messages. And we are introduced to a man that had a nickname, and his nickname was The Voice. Uh, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And what I believe is that God has given each of us a voice to steward for his purposes and for his glory. And tragically, many times we use the voice that God has given us to advance our own purposes, to advance our own glory, rather than reflecting the glory of God. We have to recognize today that there is great power in the words that we say, that there is great weight to our words. How many of you would say that there is certainly some weight to the words that we say? Anybody agree with that today? I remember a few years ago, I was teaching my daughter, Liv, my oldest daughter, the value of good sportsmanship. And uh, she does uh, have, have a hard time losing. And so, uh, you know, she was getting frustrated if she lost that something. And so we were trying to work with her on this. And, and uh, she was getting upset and not want to give a high five, you know, not want to uh, smile. And so I was trying to teach Liv to be a good sport. And I said to Liv, I said, Liv, you need, uh, you need to learn to be a good loser. And my youngest daughter, Blakely, she kind of heard that at the time. She was just three years old, and she was listening, and she said, yeah, Liv, you're a loser. And uh, I, was, I was thinking, Blakely, that's not, that's not what I'm trying to communicate. And, uh, and so I, I told Blakely, I said, no, Blakely, we shouldn't call someone a loser. That's not nice. That's like saying that someone's an idiot. And Blakely thought about that. I could tell she was confused, and she thought, she thought so Liv is a loser? <laughs> or Liv is an idiot? And I was like, no, 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 Blakely, she's, she's not an idiot. And, uh, and uh, so I was, trying to, I was trying to teach her the, the value of her vocabulary, and she's still kind of growing in that area, so if you want to pray for her. And, uh, and so I was trying to teach her the weight of our words. There's great power in the words that we communicate. In fact, uh, the Bible puts it this way in Proverbs chapter number 21, verse 23. Uh, Whoso keepeth his mouth and his tongue keepeth his soul from troubles. How many of you would say, I'd like to keep my soul from some troubles. I'd like to be able to guard my life so that trouble doesn't have access. Well, one of the ways in which we do that is we guard the words that we say. And so God has given us a voice. And the question is, are we using that voice for the purposes of God? Or are we using that voice to advance our own agenda? See, we can use the voice that God has given us to encourage the people around us. We can use the voice that God has given us to exhort those that might be drifting. We can use the voice that God has given us to edify those that are growing, to build people up. We can certainly use the voice that God has given us to evangelize those that are lost and tell them about the love of Jesus Christ. Are we using the voice that God has given us? I like what the psalmist said in Psalm 119 verse 172. My tongue shall speak of thy word. I love the decisiveness there. My tongue will speak of thy word for all thy commandments are righteousness. Uh, The psalmist just made a decision. I will use my voice for God's will. Now we come to Luke chapter three and we're introduced to John the Baptist. Uh, That was not a a religious denomination uh, reference that was a reference to his ministry. He was John the Baptizer. He was uh, having a ministry of baptizing, and John the Baptist had this nickname of the voice. 
Uh, He was the voice of one crying in uh, the wilderness. And John kind of lived an interesting life. John lived a life out in the wild. He lived a life out in the wilderness. He was kind of eccentric. I I think John's life would have made a great reality TV show. Uh, Kind of like a survivor and alone and duck dynasty all kind of partnered into one show. How many of you would say, I'd watch that show, right? And uh, and so John was kind of an outdoorsman. And uh, uh, John was someone that uh, lived out in the wild, but he used that time in the wilderness to point other people to Jesus. And John was someone that used his voice to declare uh, the truth about the identity of uh, Jesus. Now, it's interesting, John's official ministry only lasted, it only lasted about six months to the longest 12 months. And so John did not have a very long ministry. You might be wondering, well, why was his ministry not very long? And the reason John's ministry was not very long is because he was eventually arrested and martyred for the things that he spoke for preaching and speaking the truth about Jesus. See, many times the reason we don't lift up our voice is we are afraid of the ramifications that might come if we do. We, we are fearful of what, might happen, of what might happen and how awkward it might be if we were to communicate the truth. But please hear me today at the 930 service. I believe that the men and women who have changed the world are the men and women who are unwilling to compromise the truth. And men and women who were willing to not be silent and to be muted when it comes to the truth of God's word. And so what I want to do today uh, for a few minutes is I want to give us a few ways in which we can lift up our voice. Does that sound all right today? How can we utilize the voice that God has given us for his glory? There's three things in the text that I see. Number one, if you're taking notes, we have to emphasize what God emphasizes. I know a lot of Christians that emphasize things that God does not emphasize. A lot of Christians that are very loud where the Bible is silent. I don't know about you, but I want to be loud where the Bible is loud. I I want to emphasize the things that God emphasizes. Now, in the first two verses of our text, Luke, the human author, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is going to show us what God emphasizes. And there's three things I believe that we can learn in verses 1 and 2. And so I want you to see them. Everybody with me today? Notice verse number 1 of our text. It says this. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, and of the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the tetrarch of Abilene, Annas, and I had to practice that verse number one, so okay, I got it down, and Annas and Caiaphas being the high priest. Now, like any good historian, Luke begins this section with verifiable people and verifiable places. Now, this is something that you need to know, and it's important to note that Luke did not begin Luke chapter 3, verse number 1, with once upon a time. Because Luke was saying, this is not a fairy tale. Uh, This is real, historical, reliable information that I'm giving you. And so to do so, Luke says, here's five political leaders, and here are two religious leaders, because if you are questioning what I'm writing, and you don't think that what I'm writing is true, then you can go and fact check until your heart is content, because I want you to know what I'm writing is reliable, and there is the veracity of the scripture. And I believe verse number one and verse number two speaks to the fidelity of scripture. I'm thankful 
that when it comes to the word of God, this is not just a fairy tale of made up disconnected stories. I'm thankful that when we open God's word, we have a more sure word of prophecy. And Luke writes to give us uh, verifiable people and verifiable places so that we know what we're reading is indeed uh, correct and reliable. In fact, one of the men mentioned in verse number two is a man named Caiaphas. Uh, He was the high priest. And back in 1990, some scholars were doing some excavations, and in Israel, they found this box. I believe we have a picture this morning. And they believe this to be the ancient burial box from the family tomb of Caiaphas, the man mentioned in verse number two of Luke chapter three. And on this box, there's the inscription that reads, Joseph, son of Caiaphas. Uh, And inside the box, they discover the remains of a 60-year-old male inside that box. But I say that to say this. When Luke writes verses 1 and 2, these are not fictional people or places. Uh, Luke is saying, hey, you can discover for yourself uh, all of these seven names that I am giving you. I'm giving you the time and the location and the setting. In fact, Albert Barnes said this. An imposter does not mention names and times and places particularly. If you did, it would be easy to ascertain that he was an imposter. But the sacred writers describe objects and men as they were perfectly familiar with them. They never appear to be guarding themselves. They speak of things mostly. If, therefore, they had been imposters, it would have been easy to detect them. Aren't you thankful today that the Bible that I hold in my hands is the reliable, faithful word of God, and we can trust it? And so I believe verse number one and verse number two speaks to the reliability of Scripture. Luke says, hey, uh, fact check if you want. Uh, look at these seven names and these places to uh, show that what we're speaking is truth. Ephesians 1.13 says, In whom also you trusted, after that you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also that you had believed, you received with that Holy Spirit of promise. And so he says, hey, we received uh, not just the words or ideas or opinions of men. We received the word of truth. And if we're going to speak the truth in our culture... We have to be confident that what we're speaking is true. And so Luke gives us these, uh, these additional details to help verify and to help give us confidence in what we are communicating. And so I believe that these verses speak to the reliability of Scripture. But I also believe verses 1 and 2 speak to the corruption of society. Why did Luke list seven names? Uh, other gospel writers, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which all talk about John the Baptist, all introduce John the Baptizer. Many of them say, and in those days. And in those days, John came. But here, Luke lists seven names. Luke is giving us a little bit more detail. It's communicating the reliability of Scripture, but also the corruption of society, because all seven of those names mentioned were not good godly people. All seven of, all seven of those guys were not good moral examples to follow. In fact, historically, we know that Pontius Pilate was known for his brutality and massacres against the Jewish people. Uh, Caiaphas uh, was not a good uh, individual. Tiberius Caesar certainly was known for his brutality. You study the Herods and Herod Philip and Herod the Tetrarch and Herod the Great. You know that the whole family of Herods was a bunch of insane people that that were known for their brutality. And, And so Luke is making sure that we know the context to which this was written. He was saying this was a dark time in culture. Uh, There was great corruption that was taking place in society, and that was the society in which John the Baptist would enter into for his ministry. In fact, when John the Apostle introduces John the Baptizer, this is what he says in John chapter 1 in verse number 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. 
Now, don't get confused. This is not talking about John the Apostle. This is talking about John the Baptizer, the cousin of Jesus. And so there was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness. Everybody say a witness. A voice, a witness. To bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe he was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. And so when John the Baptist entered into his ministry, you need to know it was a dark time in history. There was great corruption in society. But I want to encourage you today because no matter how dark the night gets and no matter how corrupt the culture gets, and it does not matter who sits in the White House, I want you to know that the darker the night, the brighter the light, and the darkness will not overcome the light. And just like John the baptizer was called and commissioned and sent to bear witness of the light, so are we. His purpose is our purpose. Make no mistake about it. You are not that light. John was not that light. But we are called to bear witness of the light of Jesus Christ. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. And so, verses 1 and 2, Luke gives us all this information. It speaks to the reliability of Scripture. It speaks to the corruption of society. But I want you to see it also speaks to the priority of Scripture. Because notice what he says now in verse number 2. You still with me today? Annas and Caiaphas, being the high priests, the word of God came unto John. I I love what Luke does here. All that setting and background, seven different names and places and location, and he says, but what I really want to talk about is a man named John. Notice the word of God did not come to Caiaphas. The word of God did not come to Tiberius Caesar. The word of God did not go to Pontius Pilate. The word of God came unto a man out in the wilderness named John. It's almost like Luke, tongue-in-cheek, is saying, hey, are you familiar with Tiberius Caesar? Of course. Are you familiar with Pontius Pilate? Yes. Are, Are you familiar with Caiaphas? Yes, I am. Good, because I don't want to talk about those guys. I want to talk about a man named John. These were the most powerful people in the known world at this time, and yet the word of God came unto John. Can I tell you that God honors people not because of their position or because of their prominence? He honors people because of their relationship with him. And so the word of God came unto John. And what Luke is doing, don't miss this, what Luke is doing is he is emphasizing what God emphasizes. Many people would emphasize the powerful leaders of the day, uh, the, the prominent positions of the day. But what Luke is saying is you want to know what's most important? That the word of God came to John. See, Luke is emphasizing what God emphasizes, and what God emphasizes is his word. And that's why at Rock Hill we say, hey, we want to emphasize what God emphasizes, and God emphasizes his word. The word of the Lord came unto John. Can I tell you that anytime you open this book, you with me today? Anytime you open this book, whether it is in your personal devotions, whether you are reading the New Testament in 30 days, whether you are attending a Bible study, a small group, or on Sunday morning at church, anytime you open this book, this book is far more important than anything that could take place in the next 24-hour news cycle. See, we need to emphasize what God emphasizes, the power and the authority of his word. The word of the Lord, the word of God came unto John. And so we must emphasize what God emphasizes. This leads us to our second thought today. Number two is this. We have to embrace the reality of the wilderness. Embrace the reality of the wilderness. Now, 
notice verse number two again. It says, Annas and Caiaphas being the high priest, the word of God, that was the priority. That was what mattered to Luke. The word of God came unto John, the son of Zacharias, the priest, uh, in the wilderness. And so where did the word of the Lord come unto John? The wilderness. And uh, John, uh, one of the hallmark features and characteristics of his life is that he spent so much time out in the wild. He was a wilderness man. How many of you would say that you are an outdoorsy type person? Can I see your hands? You like the outdoors? Okay, keep them up for a second. Let me see. Okay, how many of you like to go camping? Can I see your hands? All right, how many of you like to go glamping? Can I see your hands? How many of you would just say, I would just choose a hotel altogether? That's what I'm going to pick. Okay. So John was a man that spent considerable time out in the desert out in the wilderness. You know, when you study the scripture, you learn that the Bible has a lot to say about wilderness seasons. Have you noticed that? Moses spent 40 years out in the wilderness. The apostle Paul, many people don't remember this, but after the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, uh, Saul spent some time after he became Paul in a season of obscurity, and he went to what the Bible calls the deserts of Arabia. For 10 years, the apostle Paul was just out in the wilderness. Jesus spent considerable time in the wilderness, uh, 40 days, 40 nights, being tempted in Luke chapter 4 of Satan in that time. And typically, we don't like wilderness seasons in our lives because a wilderness speaks to barrenness, it speaks to dryness, it speaks to uh, desolation. And so we don't like the desert. In fact, I remember growing up, somebody told me how to remember the difference between the spelling of the word desert and the spelling of the word desert right? You spell dessert with two S's because everybody wants more dessert, and you spell desert with one S because everybody uh, wants less desert. How many of you learned that growing up, right? And so it's an easy way to remember it. Typically, we want less desert uh, in life, but what was John doing out in the wilderness? In fact, John spent the majority of his life out in the wilderness, as we'll see. What was he doing? I want to give us three things that he did in the wilderness. Uh, First, he was waiting, Notice what the Bible says in Luke 1, verse 80. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the deserts to the day of his showing unto Israel. That means that John spent the majority of his life out in the desert. It wasn't like he was out there for a season, for a couple of months. John's earthly ministry of baptism didn't really begin until he was 30. And so John spent his entire life out in the desert. In fact, I think we have a picture this morning of a map. And uh, uh, John, if you notice, uh, to the north of the, of the Dead Sea, there's a city of Jericho. And just to the west of the Dead Sea, uh, this area south of Jericho, that would have been uh, kind of the obscure desert in which John was living and spending the time in his life. And uh, uh, John uh, had a high calling on his life. If you remember, uh, Zacharias, his, his father, certainly would have told him about the prophecy concerning John. That, hey, you were meant to be the forerunner uh, of uh, the coming Messiah. That you were meant to prepare the way. John had a high calling in his life. But when he looked around at his circumstances, what did he see? A barren wasteland. He saw desert. And John was waiting out in the wilderness. Uh, A couple of months ago, we were driving our family on the 138. And uh, how many of you have ever been on the 138, Highway 138? Uh, I've read that it's the most dangerous highway in America. And so you want to be careful on the 138. And we were driving out in the middle of the desert. And all of a sudden, my car kind of started to sputter. And uh, then the engine just kind of died out. And so we pulled over on the side of the road. All my family got out. And we were kind of just broke down there in the middle of the desert. And so we called the tow truck. And we were just waiting. And my youngest daughter, Blakely, she didn't want to wait out in the dirt. She didn't want to sit on the dirt. And so I think we have a picture we kind of made for her a little spot for her to lay. And uh, she kind of just made a 
little seat there, and uh, it was actually like a little bed for a stuffed animal dog that she ended up using to, uh, to sit in. And we were just out there waiting in the desert. And, uh, and I don't know about you, uh, but sometimes I have a hard time waiting. Anybody resonate with that, right? The tow truck guy said he was going to be there in 20 minutes. An hour later, call them. Hey, where are you at? Hey, I'll be there in 30 minutes. Another hour later, uh, call them again. We ended up waiting more than three hours in the desert uh, for the t- uh, truck, uh, tow truck driver to come. Well, here, I want you to kind of resonate with this for a second. John the Baptist didn't spend three hours in the wilderness. He didn't spend three days in the wilderness. He spent three decades in the wilderness. What was he doing? He was waiting, waiting, waiting for the coming Messiah, waiting for his assignment to be activated. He was waiting. You know, waiting can be difficult when you're waiting for a new opportunity, waiting for test results, waiting for a new season, uh, waiting for a raise. You know, Charles Spurgeon, he said this about waiting. He said, if the Lord Jehovah makes us wait, let us do so with our whole hearts. For blessed are all they that wait for him. He is worth waiting for. The waiting itself is beneficial to us. It tries faith. It exercises patience. It trains submission and endears the blessing when it does come. The Lord's people have always been a waiting people. What was John doing out in the wilderness? He was waiting. The second thing that he was doing, he was witnessing. In fact, you study John's life, great crowds were coming to him to listen to him preach. In fact, the Bible says in Mark 1, 5, and there went out unto him, all the land of Judea, and they of Jerusalem, and were all baptized of him in the river of Jordan, confessing uh, their sins. And so they all went out to him. John was drawing in large crowds. But I want you to notice where he was doing this witnessing. Where he was doing this preaching was in the wilderness. What that means is he was not preaching and witnessing in the synagogue. Don't you think if John was going to point more people to the Messiah, he would have gone to the local synagogues and said, hey, I've got a message. I'm preparing the way for the coming Messiah. Uh, Don't you think that he would have uh, gone to the temple in Jerusalem and said, hey, uh, the coming Messiah, uh, he is on his way. Don't you think that John would have done that? But rather, John was out witnessing in the wilderness. He was out in the wild. And so many people were coming uh, to hear this message. And John had this ministry of baptism and pointing people to the coming Messiah. And I love that John was witnessing out in the wild. Because I believe if we're going to make a difference for the cause of Christ, I believe if we're going to lift up our voices for the glory of God, we have to be willing to get uncomfortable. We have to be willing to go out into the wild to bring other people in to hear the good news of the gospel. Can I encourage you that The people next to you in your office on Monday morning, the gospel is needed there in your cubicle just as much as the gospel is needed here this morning. We have to recognize that God has given us a voice to go out and to compel other peoples to hear the goodness of the gospel. What was John doing? He was waiting. He was witnessing. But I want you to see a third thing that that, that we learn about John in the wilderness. He He was waiting in the wilderness. He was witnessing in the wilderness. Here's the third one. You ready for it? He was weird in the wilderness. All right. Now, I want you to see what the Bible says in Mark chapter 1, verse number 6. And John was clothed with camel's hair and with a girdle of skin about his loins, and he did eat locusts and wild honey. So John had some unique tendencies, um, and uh, John was a little bit odd, right? And, you know, the truth is I think we're all a little bit weird at times. Would you agree with that, right? My dad used to say growing up in church that the gospel light attracts some strange bugs. And uh, how many of you are familiar with that, right? Thank you. <laughs> and uh, John was not just 
a strange bug. John was eating bugs. He was eating locusts. That was, the, that was a, a food for poor people. And John just kind of lived this eccentric, wild lifestyle out in the wild. In fact, John, the Bible says, according to Luke chapter 1, verse 15, that he was a Nazarite. And if you know what a Nazarite did, a Nazarite would never cut their beard, would never cut their hair. And so John was just like a wild man. In fact, if what I read is correct, often a Nazarite would, would carry a little pouch that was attached to their leather belt, and they would put the length of their beard and hair in that pouch so they wouldn't trip over it when they walked. And so I want you to all just kind of picture for a second John the Baptist in your mind, all right? Everybody kind of think of what that looks like. He's got his pouch, he's got his beard, he's got his long hair. He's out in the wilderness, he's eating bugs and honey, and he's got his camel's uh, hair coat. Uh, but what I love about John, are you with me today? What I love about John is that he was not concerned with blending in to the culture around him. John was just okay with being who God created him to be. And the Bible says in Romans chapter 12, verse number one, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world. We are called and commissioned to not be conformed, to be patterned after this world. Can I just remind you today that we are not to conform to the culture. We are to conform to Christ. We are not to bow down to culture. We are to bow down to Christ. And John was someone that was willing to go against the grain, uh, to go against the current. He wasn't trying to blend in with culture. In fact, uh, he stood out uh, in a great way. I love what Charles Spurgeon said. He said, Lord, let not my meat and my drink or my garments hinder me in thy work. I think that we all should have that desire. I don't want what I eat and what I drink and what I wear to be a hindrance to God uh, doing something special in my life and in my uh, family. And so uh, he was in the wilderness, but he was uh, kind of going against the grain of culture. Now, when it comes to culture, I want to give us a couple of practical things uh, this morning. Uh, would it be okay if we kind of got real practical today when it comes to the culture around us? Because a lot of times we struggle with the culture around us. And uh, man, when should I isolate from the culture? When should I kind of infiltrate the culture? And what am I supposed to do with everything going on around me? Well, let me get real practical and let me give you three responses to the culture around us, all right? Uh, the first response to the culture around us is that there are some things in the culture we can simply receive. So the first word would be receive. There are some things in the culture that uh, they might not necessarily be spiritual, um, but we can receive them because uh, there's uh, nothing inherently wrong with them. I'll give you an example of this. Uh, the most sung song in the United States year after year. Seth, do you know what it is? Want to say it? Want to say it? It's the song Happy Birthday. Let's give it up for Seth for paying attention this morning. <laughs> Happy Birthday. And uh, uh, that song is not necessarily spiritual, but we sing it all the time. And it's a part of culture. In fact, if you wanted to be snarky, you could say the song Happy Birthday is kind of egotistical. It's kind of self-centered. It's narcissistic. It's all about you. Uh, I think we should just cancel the song Happy Birthday, and we should just not sing it. No, nobody says that. Why? It's just something in the culture that first you can receive, okay, receive. But then, how many of you know that there are some things in the culture that we cannot receive, but the second category is there are some things in culture we have to reject. And this is where often things can kind of get uncomfortable. Because we often don't want to reject certain things. We don't want it to get uncomfortable. Uh, but let me give you an example. If someone is promulgating a gender ideology that goes against Genesis 1 that says, in the beginning God created male and female, created he them, then that is something, that's an ideology that we must reject. That's not something that we receive because it goes against God's word. And so there are some things, some philosophies, some ideologies and culture that we have to be okay with as Christians and say, you know what, I can't receive that. I can reject it in love. Okay? 
And so there are some things that we can receive. There are some things, no, we got to reject. And then there's a third category, some things in culture we redeem. We redeem something. So let me give you an example of this. Uh, Every October, on October 31st, we have something uh, as a church that we call Trunk or Treat. And uh, we, we celebrate this. It's a community outreach event. We call people in. And it's on Halloween. And we're not uh, celebrating a pagan uh, idea or, or something uh, that is wicked or ungodly. What we're doing is we're taking a secular holiday, something in culture, and we want to redeem it for God's glory, for God's purpose, by inviting the community in so that we can share the gospel. And I'm thankful that many people have been saved and reached as a result of a Trunk or Treat. And so there are some things in culture that we can receive readily. There are some things in culture we need to reject readily, and there are some things that we can redeem for God's glory and for his purpose. But at the end of the day, we must remember, and what do we learn from John the baptizer, that we do not bow to culture. We bow to Christ. Now, this is going to lead us to our third thought. You have time for one more in you today? Number three is this. We then have to exclaim the truth about Jesus. We've got to shout it out. We've got to lift up our voice. We've got to exclaim the truth about Jesus. Now, John's life, as we're going to see in this series, was all about pointing people to the truth about Jesus. John 10, 41 says this, And many resorted unto him and said, John did no miracle. Now, remember that. John didn't do a miracle. John's ministry was not characterized by the miraculous and by the magnificent. Okay? So he did no miracle. But all things that John spake of this man were true. They were true, and many believed on him there. And so John's ministry was not about his miracles. It was about his message. He was speaking the truth. Can I tell you today that even if it might be a little uncomfortable, that people are desperately searching all around us for what is true? What can I actually believe? I I know that I read so many things on social media, and I know that I see so many things in the entertainment culture. I see so many things around me, but what is real? What what can I actually believe? What, what, What can I hold on to as Truth, and not just subjectivized truth, your truth and my truth and their truth. What is actually true? Well, John's message was all about the truth. Everything that he spoke of this man were true. Uh, Sometimes the truth can be uncomfortable. How many of you have ever been talking with someone? Let me get some participation this morning. Have you ever been talking with someone and you noticed in conversation as you were talking with them that they had something in their teeth? Uh, That ever happened to you? And how many of you have ever had that happen and you didn't say anything because you didn't want to embarrass them? Can you hold your hands up high? Notice the kind of friends that are in this room this morning that that are holding up their hands, right? And uh, why? We don't say something often because it can be embarrassing. We don't want them to feel uncomfortable or embarrassed. And so we kind of shy away from that. And that is often what takes place when it comes to far more serious matters concerning the truth about who Jesus is. And what John does is he's going to show us that he was unapologetically proclaiming the truth. And, And I want to... Uh, give us two things as we close today. I want you to see first John's preaching. Notice in verse number three. It says this in verse three. And he came into all the country of Jordan, preaching the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. Now, John did something that was unusual in his day. What John did is he was baptizing, but he was baptizing Jewish people. Now, this was unheard of in the first century. Baptism was not an unheard of practice. Many people were baptizing. In fact, when a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, converted to Judaism, what they would do often is they would baptize that person as a symbol of the cleansing that took place. And so baptism was not an unfamiliar concept, but John baptizing Jewish people was unfamiliar. This was something new. And for a Jewish person in this culture to be baptized and to submit to that was a very humbling thing. A sign of repentance, because what they were saying is, we are on the same level and on the same playing field as even the Gentiles. 
And so John was out baptizing. In fact, it caused a big stir. We're going to see next week. So many people came and asked questions. Who gives you the authority to do this? And why are you baptizing? What is this all about? John was really ruffling some feathers because he was baptizing Jewish people. Now, it's important to note, this is an important distinction to make when you're studying scripture, that John was not baptizing how we view baptism today. Because when we baptize, we talk about the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Well, when John was baptizing, that hadn't happened yet. And so John was baptizing something that was called the baptism of repentance. In fact, the apostle Paul talked about this in Acts chapter 19, verse number four. Then said Paul, John, speaking of John the baptizer, baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. And so John's message of baptism was a symbolic sign of repentance. And that would lead to the remission, as verse 3 tells us, or the forgiveness of sins. And so John was baptizing as a sign of people repenting, turning from their sins. So two words here I want to talk about. The first is repentance. Repentance means to make a 180-degree turn, change. Please hear me. There's a big difference between remorse and repentance. Remorse says, man, I feel bad about that. Remorse says, I feel guilty. Uh, but uh, remorse says, I feel bad. Repentance says, I will change. A lot of times we feel bad about certain things. We feel guilty, a sense of guilt. Uh, and so there's remorse. But I wonder, is, is there repentance? Because repentance says, I'm actually going to change. I'm actually going make to a, make a turn. And so John was preaching repentance. In fact, uh, repentance is a, a big theme in the New Testament. John came preaching repentance. And a lot of people don't like that word repentance because it means something has to change. But John was preaching repentance, turn. But then he says repentance at the end of verse number three for the remission of sins. Remission, forgiveness. This is one of the most wonderful realities in all the world that we can be forgiven of all of our sins, past, present, future. The Bible says this in 1 John 1 verse number nine. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Is there anybody that is thankful at the 930 service today that whatever we confess, he promises to cleanse? Whatever we repent of, he promises the remission of sins, the forgiveness of sins, that God wants to give us a clean slate and a new beginning. And so John is preaching. He's preaching uh, the repentance of sin and the remission, the forgiveness of our sins. And Jesus stands ready today. No matter what you've done, no matter what your life looks like, no matter how bad you think it is, his forgiveness is available. But not only John's preaching. I want you to see as we close today, John's preparation. I'm going to read these last few verses and we're done. But John was meant to prepare. Notice it in verse number four. As it is written, as it is written in the Old Testament, in the book of the words, Esaias, he's quoting here from the Old Testament book of the prophet Isaiah. And it's interesting, when it comes to John the baptizer's life, all four gospels quote this same verse. And so it was pretty important to the Holy Spirit to mention that he was the fulfillment of this prophecy that Isaiah gave. So he quotes Isaiah chapter 40, verse number three, but he says this, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, he lifted up his voice, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be brought low and the crooked shall be made straight and 
Um, and the rough ways shall be made smooth. John was the fulfillment of this prophetic word from Isaiah that he would come and be the forerunner to prepare the way for someone that was greater than himself. Now, this is something that the first century audience, they would have been very familiar with, with this. In Roman culture, if a Roman official was going to make an entrance into a city, they would have a herald go through and pronounce that he was coming in. They would have a herald say, do, 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 uh, someone famous is coming in. Make sure that everybody's ready and get everything in order. When an ancient king was going to go and visit another nation, he would send a forerunner. He would send a messenger before him to clear out the roads, to clear out the way, to make preparations, to make sure that everything was set in order. And that's exactly what John the baptizer was called to do for the coming Messiah of Jesus, to prepare the way. Now, please hear me today, because this was not just a message for John. This was not only an assignment for John, because we believe that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, he is coming again. And it is our job as followers of Jesus to simply be a signpost that points other people to him. To prepare the way and to tell the world and to tell the culture, hey, Jesus loves you and Jesus died on the cross for you and Jesus rose again on the third day and he is coming again and he wants to forgive you of your sins and he wants to give you a home in heaven. Hey, there ought to be some followers of Jesus even in 2024 that would lift up their voices to declare the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. John's purpose is our purpose. Now is not the time for followers of Jesus to be comfortable and to be silent. Because make no mistake about it, the world is pretty loud about what they believe. The world is loud out in the wild. Hey, they're not ashamed of what they believe. But why, when it comes to the good news of the gospel and the light of Jesus Christ, that we put a bushel or a basket over our light? Now is the time to recognize that we are a city on a hill that cannot be hid. And we must lift up our voices to tell the lost world around us the good news of salvation. Because notice what John says and we'll be done. Verse six. In all flesh, that's everybody. That's Jew, that's Gentile, that's black, that's white, that's every tribe, every nation, every tongue, all flesh shall see, that means it won't be hidden, all flesh shall see, verse six, the salvation of God. This is what John was declaring, that Jesus Christ is offering salvation, saved from our sins, saved from the power of our sin, saved from a pathway to hell, saved so that we can have a home in heaven when we die, that we can see the salvation of God. And today, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, today can be the day of salvation for you. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes today.